20 years ago, our country was irrevocably changed on 9-11, and we saw that change through all walks of life. But one of the things that helped us get through those moments, get through that scary time, was baseball. This episode, we're going to be looking at 9-11, both the day it happened 20 years ago and how we have reacted to it 20 years later. We're going to be talking to a lot of military guys. We're going to be talking to baseball teams that serve a military community. And we're going to be talking about what's next as we sort of emerge from that 20-year period. It's actually really fitting that we're doing the beginning of this episode from San Antonio. San Antonio is so important to the American military. It's kind of the heartbeat of our military. It's got Fort Sam Houston, which is where men and women who are injured in battle come to begin to take that next step. It's also the home of the Air Force. You get airmen who are going to basic training, who are beginning their careers, and then you always see uh, retired airmen and, and soldiers who make their lives here. One of the best things about coming to a San Antonio missions game is you see that play out. You'll see airmen on their first pass with their families after graduation. Coming to a baseball game to feel a little bit like home, even though they're beginning an entirely new chapter of their life. This is Let's Get To. Stay with us. After 9-11, and as is the case with many crises or changes in culture, a lot of artists responded with how they saw the world post one of the most world-changing events in modern world history. You had Alan Jackson come out with Where, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? And then you also had Toby Keith with his, you know, boot in your ass song. Now, it might surprise you as a staff sergeant in the Army uh, that I wasn't a big fan of the Toby Keith thing. I thought it was super easy to go and write a check that your ass doesn't have to cash. And I was really struck by the Alan Jackson song. Now, first of all, uh, any country music fan out there knows that there's really no comparison between Alan Jackson and Toby Keith. Alan Jackson's, I think, actually talented. And Toby Keith somehow monetized being a redneck. However, mileage can vary for everyone. But I definitely connected to the Alan Jackson song. And knowing that the world was different. Um, I've always been, a, I've always been a student of history. And so it doesn't take a, a guy with a PhD to recognize that Pearl Harbor changed things. And this also was going to change things. Now, my 9-11 story is probably like most people's 9-11 story. Uh, it's not overly dramatic. Um, I wasn't in New York. I wasn't in the Pentagon and I wasn't on the plane that crashed. Where I was uh, was in Oklahoma, uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, for the basic non-commissioned officers course. I'd been promoted to staff sergeant a few months earlier, and it was time for me to rotate back from Germany for about six weeks to go through this class. And uh, we call it BNOC, and it was, it's actually a lot of fun. You, you're getting to reconnect with folks you served with maybe before you got promoted, and now you're getting a chance to kind of reconnect. And we had gone to PT one morning. Uh, had done breakfast and we're heading back to class when the first plane hit. I'm a little embarrassed that there were jokes. And you got to understand for those of you who are listening that don't get what that lifestyle is like or that group of people is like, is that that's how we process stuff uh, is through jokes that may, maybe you would find inappropriate. When the second plane hit, everything changed. Um, 
Now you gotta understand, like this is the basic non-commissioned officer's course for a 13 Fox. And the 13 Fox is essentially the tip of the spear for the regular army. Um, it is our job to identify targets for the artillery, for the air force, and in some cases, Navy guns to basically deplete the opposition force. So that by the time that they encounter the maneuver element, it's no contest. So things got real, real for us in a, right then. And all of us knew that everything that we were learning wasn't academic anymore and that there was a real possibility that we would all be kind of in some way or another thrown into harm's way. And so it definitely changed things. And the other thing that it, for me and for Jessica was it got my head spinning because again, part of our job as a 13 Fox, a forward observer is to identify targets and to plan things. And it seemed to me that if I am ballsy enough or bold enough to plan an attack in the United States on our biggest city and on one of the symbols of our defensive might, then attacking the largest contingent of American soldiers outside the U.S. was very in the realm of possibility. And I'm speaking of Baumholder, Germany, where my wife was living. Because again, I was that way at school. She was still home. We didn't get a hold of each other, uh, I think, for a full day. And, you know, it was frantic, an occasional missed message, but mostly just nothing coming through. And it was nothing but relief when we did finally get a hold of each other. And, you know, I will say this. Um, she was brave and she was strong, even though her her world over there was upside down. I'm talking immediate lockdown, um, curfews. MPs patrolling the the, uh, the streets and Humvees with fully loaded like 50 caliber machine guns, all that stuff with the the bomb holder peep, the police department, whatever, securing the outside. And that was the other thing that she said. She said that the outreach from the people of bomb holder Germany, um, flowers on the front gate, things like that, um, really brought a sense of comfort to her and what was already a very crazy time. I finished school, um, actually did go home to see my parents in Houston, Texas, and being weirded out when I would uh, go through the airport and there would be National Guardsmen with M M16s, uh, in part because as a regular army with an actual combat job, we sometimes question the competency of the National Guard. And listen, I understand that that's my circus and my monkeys, but it was off-putting. And when we got back, it was different got back to Germany. It was no more people visiting base. It was um, setting up barriers in front of the front gate and inspecting every vehicle that came through. Um, it got real, real quick. I didn't deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's going to be um, something I'm going to carry with me for all of my life about that. The fact that I um, set, saw troops that I trained go to combat and living for that first year, they were gone hoping that they could, that they were going to make it through. And for the most part, and really the troops that I was the most connected to did, now, I didn't deploy because, you know, for about a year, um, I was dealing with knee stuff and it had started with some minor injuries and other exercises or whatever that I think led to essentially just a, 
a debilitating, just degrading situation on my knees. And I, I find it funny because, you know, in the military, your equipment, if you're a person, uh, that's why GI means government issue for GI Joe. And so, uh, we had a year of just like figuring out what they were going to do. They're going to reclass me. They can't reclass me because I was too high a rank. And then I remember being on staff duty Halloween night and, um, driving home with a couple of my troops, Jessica had made dinner and getting an email from the department of the army saying you'd be out of the army in a month because they had to put in someone else of my same position. The government had to authorize that. It was a whole thing. And that should have been the first tip that we would be one of the first across the, the border. And that was actually going into Iraq was what my unit went to. But in the 20 years since, it's been a date that I've reflected on a lot. Um, I think it defined so many things for me, just like it defined so many things, defined so many things for the country, uh, defined so many things for our relationship with my wife. It defined so many things for lots of people. Um, and it, it, even as it's already been politic politicized and in some ways lessons lost already, like lessons forgotten. The fact that we have a, a group of people who will claim it was fake or that we planned it or America planned it is, is just shows you how, how quickly the, the, I guess the emotions from that day have faded. But for me, they haven't, for me, it doesn't feel like 20 years ago. Um, it, it doesn't feel that long ago that I was checking on friends that worked like I had a friend who worked for Morgan Stanley in the world trade center. So it, it is interesting to me how, how yesterday like it feels. And it, it kind of got put into perspective with the decision to pull out of Afghanistan. And I'd love to sit here and tell you um, that I, as a vet, like I know what what should have happened. And I think that what should happen was either right or wrong. I don't know the answer. I agree with the concept that, um, you know, America, I don't even want to say that it, we're not good at nation building because there's actually two big evidences that, that we are super good at it in Japan and in Germany. But it does, does seem like that region, it wasn't working. And I don't know that I would have been in favor of an endless war. But I also don't think that you can arbitrarily set a date or a time and ignore mission parameters and say, that's when we're leaving. That's what happened in Vietnam when we decided to leave and it didn't work there. And it's not working now. I think about... Um, Being for, former military, you you look at things a certain way. And in many ways, maybe it's too simplistic to look at things the way we do. But I looked at it as saying, listen, it makes sense to me that if we're fighting them there and, you know, combat operations had really dropped off in Afghanistan anyway, um, we're not dealing with them here. And that I think is is true. And I also think of the ancillary benefits. We've, we've, we've seen ad nauseum. Um, the improvements of life for women in Afghanistan and that, and those gains have almost immediately been erased. They were erased before that last American plane took off from Kabul. I don't know how to define whether the mission was a success or not, but what I refuse to believe and what I refuse to, um, really acknowledge. And again, I don't speak for every single veteran out there. Everyone's uh, mileage may vary. We're going to have at least one on the show to talk today 
I refuse to acknowledge that their lives um, were given in vain. I refuse to acknowledge that their sacrifice, the thousands of American women, men and women in uniform, were not worth it. I don't think it's fair to their memories to think that. I don't think that it's fair to um, their loved ones and the fact that for every single Christmas or Hanukkah or Thanksgiving or whatever is now going to have an empty seat at a table. I refuse to think that that was done and it was a sacrifice that just ultimately didn't matter. And it's disgusting to see people on both sides of the political aisle make that argument when, because it's the most convenient for them. And I refuse to think about what happened in Afghanistan for the last 20 years as anything that's politically transactional. I don't care how it might affect the Democrats in the midterms. And I don't care if it gives you know, Republicans an edge. I don't care about any of that stuff. What I care about are the American lives lost. And my hope is that no matter what happens, that we, we treat all of those men and women the ones who didn't come home, the ones who came home uh, injured, the ones who came home and part of them still there. Uh, a very good friend of mine that, that I know struggles with this literally all the time. I hope that we as a country, no matter what we think about or how we contextualize the war in Afghanistan, I hope that we never dishonor the sacrifice of them. And I hope that we remember that in our rhetoric about it, that we at least maintain a modicum of respect for them. I'm of the opinion that if you died for this country or you gave up a body part for this country, you are among the best of us. Everything that we have, every ability we have to protest, every ability that we have to yell at our government and say, that's not right. Every ability that we have to change careers halfway through our life, every ability that we have for a fat guy to do a baseball show is because Men and women, women, women willingly lay down their lives for us. And that's a sacrifice that we cannot and should not ever be taken in vain. Ladies and gentlemen, please adjust your scorecards. We have a special guest in the lineup. Meeting is being recorded. Leave meeting now. Yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> So we're excited to, to be, it's, it's weird to say excited, Eric, because it's our 9-11 episode, but you and I have known each other on going on 21 years. Um, you've been on the show before to talk about um, that ba the baseball team uh, that you root for in Arlington. Um, Let's just go as far as to say, I mean, since the Cowboys are, wouldn't the Rangers be America's team? I'm actually fighting with somebody on Twitter about how the Cowboys actually are America's team. So if you see me cop over and do this, it's because I came up with something clever. <laughs> um, you know, but I wanted to talk, you know, you and I served together. You served for before I did and then long after. Um, real quick, though, you retired as a CW5, correct? Four. Four. Can you explain sort of to the audience what a warrant officer is and then what a chief warrant officer is? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, you made it up the ranks and we're, we're a fast, uh, fast tracker like I was, made staff starting your first tour. Um, you know, those are, those are the leaders where, where metal hits the road, you're pushing troops to, to do their task, right? You're their first line supervisor, you're their mom, dad, priest, uncle, aunt, you know, whatever you need to be, mom, dad. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, from the NCO Corps, warrant officers are divided into two, almost 50-50, right? So there's 50% of the population that are pilots, and those could be prior service, but uh, there's also a, a good chunk of those guys that are high school, flight school, or other appointments, right? So there's that half of the warrant corps, but then there's the technical side, uh, which I came up in. So I crossed over as a staff sergeant, just like you were. And uh, what the warrant officer corps looks for in the technical side is somebody who's highly specialized and proficient in their given field. And then a warrant officer does that for the rest of their career. So, you know, you and I were both 13 Foxes, uh, Fort Observers, you know, artillery guys as enlisted. Um, the Army sought fit that had enough expertise to, to move forward and just be the technical guy, not troop leading anymore, be the, the guy to, to figure out technical solutions for things field artillery wise. So I did that for, you know, made it up from W1 to W4, retired at W4. So what does that mean? I mean, I did a lot of uh, managing how the Army fights radars. Uh, I did a lot of uh, initial pieces on how the Army does different types of targeting, right? The technical side of it, not really the action side of the world. Sure. And also, too, um, what was always cool about our relationship was anytime I needed advice as a young NCO, you're always there. Yes, with sarcasm, but also with a lot of heart. So that's what <laughs> we expect out of our relationship. Um, you were in the Army, fought in Desert Storm. Uh, but I want to go back to 9-11 because um, you were, I talked about in the opening where I was, I was at Beanock when it happened. Um, and you were, you know, in a Eater Oberstein in bomb holder. What was that day like for you? What do you remember? Funny. Uh, so, I mean, if you go back to those days, you know, infancy of some of the technologies we have today. Um, so we're actually out uh, in a, field training exercise and bomb holder training area. You and I've been there many times. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we're in the middle of doing this digital gunnery type of stuff and working radars, et cetera. And one of the young specialists comes by and they had uh, a TV with rabbit ears hooked up on the talk, the tech operation center. And he goes, yeah, you know, a plane just ran into one of the towers of the twin towers, you know, in New York. Like, yeah, that's weird. You know? Okay. So, you know, that sucks. Then, you know, a little while later, I mean, we all, you know, just went on about our jobs the day. Then a little while later, a uh, different kid comes by and says, man, a plane just ran into the second tower, you know, and we're thinking, hey, you guys are full of shit, you know. Yeah. Um, not sure if I can say shit on your show. You sure as shit can. Can I say ass? You can. All right. Well, tell me where my limits. Well, anyway, so that went on for a while. Again, communications were kind of slow. And then we started seeing some movement, right? The S3, you know, the majors of the of the battalion, guys started, everybody started flexing towards the talk. So me and the guy you know too, Fred Theobald, yep. good friend of mine, uh, we meandered over to the talk and sure as shit, we we're watching uh, events kind of go over live, you know, those, uh, those very graphic pictures that we all started seeing right off the bat um, of what's happening. Next thing you know, um, we get locked down in place. Um, we got people working on ammo draws, um, you know, issuing this live battle, you know, body armor, that kind of stuff. And later on that afternoon, we packed it into uh, back to bomb holder to get ready. Um, we didn't know what was coming. And that, there was and a lot of packing in different places, you know. And talk about that because I, you know, I remember even being like, um, 
in Beanock and we had certain other 13 foxes of different units that had different color hats and we did were gone the next day and our stuff got shortened down. But yeah, like I'm assuming much like myself, you expected if they had the, the balls to hit us in New York, then what's to stop them from hitting us in other places, right? Like you didn't really know what was going to happen. Well, I mean, so from both of us spending time in the army prior to 9-11, you know, for the most part, there was procedures, but for the most part, many posts and most posts were, were kind of open, right? You yeah. can bring friends on, family, uh, not all posts were fully gated, you know, uh, et cetera. Um, that certainly changed and it's been the steadfast since then, right? We, we take security very seriously now. I mean, every post in America, uh, well, across the world, every U.S. military post is now very secured down and it has been since then. So, you know, it's interesting because I ended up, le- I ended up being out of the army and I explained why in my previous segment of what happened. So uh, we go to Afghanistan first, but our unit goes to Iraq first. Um, and then eventually you did how many tours in Afghanistan? Uh, well, I did, uh, I did, uh, so from the first armor division, which we were stationed, I went over there and did a partial tour and then, uh, the army did a priority fill and flew me out and put me at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, <laughs> managing the army's radars, right? All the army's radars. Um, so that was my, my first tour to Iraq. And then I went back uh, 11 more times, not full tours, right? I'd go over there for a month to three months at a time, bouncing radar to radar. A lot of that was uh, hitching rides with convoys and doing sketchy shit that let's never tell Tammy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Luckily, no one watches this show, so Tammy's fine. I'm just I'm kidding. <laughs> to all of our viewers out there, and my wife, he's like, I'm not supposed to say nobody watches the show. We have a great and loyal listener and viewership. Um, one of the things that I love about you and one of the things where I find um, you and I have some common ground, you're not a um, – and I think most people who serve more than a minute lose this pretty quickly. You're not Rambo. You never thought you were Rambo. You are a very – you're very sensitive as to what war means. You're very sensitive to what, um, what the cost involved is. Uh, I don't think you've ever been like, I can't wait to get over there and kick your ass. It was more of a kick their ass. I think there's there's really a... I would have been the first guy on my block to get a confirmed kill. No, that's <laughs> exactly. What was yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. Um, what was that so, from? Full, full I think it was jacket. Full Metal yeah. Jacket. Yeah, yeah, Full Metal Jacket. And so talk to me a little bit about just what what sacrifice we as a country, as far as some of our best and brightest young men and women have made in Afghanistan, um, both from a tactical perspective of preventing other terrorist attacks, because let's be honest, we can make, we can say what we wanted to, but we haven't had a domestic terrorist attack since it happened. I think in large part because of our efforts over there, but also just, you know, as far as what was going on in, in react in, in reality to Afghanistan on the ground. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, to put it in perspective, so, you know, most of my combat time before and after uh, 9-11 was in Iraq. I didn't actually go to Afghanistan until after I retired. I went as a Department of the Army civilian uh, and I spent a year over there. I just uh, couldn't have enough, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'll tell you that um, I'm very proud that, you know, since the draft ended, uh, you know, after Vietnam, 
every one of us, you, me, every other vet we know, except for some of those, you know, some of those older vets that are did Vietnam, Korea, World War II, they're still left. Every one of us that are fighting now or did fight, raised our right hand. We all were willingly for whatever our motivations were. College money to get out of our hometown. They didn't have any other prospects, right? In my case, I was a dumbass and lost my football scholarship, you know. <laughs> whatever the case is, right? We all, we all, we all uh, we all raised our right hand. Mine was a girl. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So uh, I lost my train of thought, but where was I going with that? You're talking about the nature of our forces. And, and yeah, I mean, so every one of us and, you know, so the military has had to change over time. So now we're you know, a bunch of millennials. Right. So everybody is a different mindset and how we how we shape our equipment, how we do it. But still, every one of them is a volunteer. They willingly went and sought out a recruiter, was competitively selected to join the service and whatever their specialty is. No, not everybody's a ram. There's a huge majority of of our forces that that have a very specific technical job you know yeah my son's in the military he's a navy guy he's, he's a pilot he's not a he's not a fighter pilot he's a he's a helicopter pilot you know in the navy right? that's his job right so we all have our function and every one of them again raise their right hand so there's no there's no force in here now when you when you turn the tides on kind of feelings right now of afghanistan it's been a tough year for me um I've had uh, three acquaintances of mine, you know, commit suicide. Veteran suicide is very serious. So, um, especially now, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of veterans uh, and a lot of the the public folks that have never served that are starting up rhetoric on social media that, yeah. uh, you know, everything we did was for nothing. No, it it wasn't. It wasn't. I, you know, I go back. Talk to, about that because you know I didn't even go there and it bugged me and. I was actually very impressed with the VA and you know me that I'm not one to quickly compliment the VA, but I'm sure you got it too. The email that said, whether you're a vet that was there or not, if you're a veteran and want to talk about what's happening, like clearly it's affecting those of us in our line of work. How do you combat those people that want to say, well, we wasted all this. And I hate when they mention the money because the money doesn't matter. I, I worry about the lives. How do you combat, combat those people when they want to say, yeah, it was a waste of our time. Well, you know, I kind of go back to, uh, you know, a lot of people loved him. A lot of people hated him. A lot of people were indifferent. But uh, Secretary Rumsfeld, you know, he I guess he put it the best. I'd rather be kicking their asses in their backyards and kicking them in my backyard, right? Yeah. Um, and we did that for years. So since then, we didn't have a terrorist attack on U.S. soil, you know. Um, we kept the fight a bay elsewhere. Uh, we were hitting them in their homes um, and stopping it at the roots. So. I'm very proud of that. You know, I have a family just as you do, just as every other one of us vets, right? And every one of us, again, back to the all volunteer military. I can't tell you how many guys, there's a term for guys, they call them pops, right? Now, that's my name as a grandfather now, but mine too. Uh, and they, they call, uh, they call privates to join the army. They quit their lines of work right at the cutoff, right? There's these, uh, you know, they, it started at the age of 38 and then uh, during when we were thick into the fight, they raised it up to like 42, I think. But all those guys were called pops, right? These guys would come in, give up their businesses, give up whatever jobs they had, their lives, join the army as a private, right? I need to do my part. And, yeah. you know, those were the, those are the old pops. And, and it's, it's those kinds of things, right? Those are some of the boys right now that I've got friends of mine that are my age that were pops and that, you know, 
privates in the army uh, when they were when they were 38 and 42. Uh, you know, pretty much every one of them. The story is they all joined as 11 Bravos, I guess. <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's an infantryman for my baseball infantry person for my baseball fans out there yeah it's um you know it's hard to wrap my to, to to try to like even have the discussion um especially because i felt like you know i understand i understand both sides of our the arguments you know i understand the side of that we couldn't have been there forever and then i but i'm also understand the fact that we've been in germany you know we've been in japan and we didn't, you know, there's a lot of, I get the circular thing. What I think is being lost though, is actually the human cost. And one of the things I'll do a big congratulations to is, and I saw this happen on Fox news. I saw this happen on MSNBC and anywhere in between. Every one of them took the time to mention the last 13 that passed away and a little bit of their bio. And I at least appreciate it for the fact that it felt like at least for one, we were having a little bit of responsibility and understanding that we have been home safe, those of us who didn't, those who didn't serve, while so many others were carrying the freight for that security. Hmm. Well, yeah, and I spent, you know, as you know, I got a military theme home bar down in the basement, and you know, when we when we lost those boys and girl, um, I spent quite a bit of time downstairs reflecting on that, and then it dawned on me, you know, that yes that sucked and it hurt me as a veteran, hurt me as a, as a combat veteran. Um, had a lot of buddies. I can't tell you if I had to go through my phone and look at the text threads and emails and phone calls I got that day and the days that followed after we lost those 13. Uh, but, you know, then it dawned on me that, you know, we're, we're not all, I guess it goes back to your opening comment, right? We're not all Rambos. We're not all Marines and Navy corpsmen out there in the front line. We've lost so many soldiers and service members this year from other things, right? You go back to um, just a week ago, we lost an entire, uh, and is a father of a Navy pilot on exactly, aircraft. Exactly, yeah. You know, we lost uh, an entire air crew that they never recovered, right? Yeah. Uh, part, of, uh, part of our profession is the risk, right? And, and again, go back to every one of us volunteer for that. It doesn't excuse any death and everyone I'm heinous, but, um, and I'm not taking anything away from those 13, but we, we as a country lose a lot of service minimum, right? Because of, because of the risk we took in raising that right hand. Yeah. And I think people need to understand that, that, you know, you and I had jobs that did put us a little closer to, um, danger than say, if we were clerks, if we were working in S1 or whatever, um, but even just the act of being in the military, getting that apparatus going is inherently dangerous. I mean, that's, you know, we, we probably know just as many people who were hurt or lost their lives in an accident than we did, you know, from enemy fire or something like that. I mean, it does seem like it's, it's uh, people need to understand just how dangerous the whole thing is just in the nature of doing it. Yeah. I mean, everybody, no matter what, what skill set they go into, I mean, every year I get, uh, AUSA Association of the United States Army's uh, special edition, you know, comes out around Christmas time, I think. But they highlight uh, several Medal of Honor winners over time from the Army. And, man, we've had chaplains, you know, win the Medal of Honor. These are non-combatant types, right? They go out yeah, there and, right. and do their services. We've had uh, cooks, right? Korean War, beating, beating Chinese soldiers down with a cast iron skillet. I mean, 
these are the these are the folks that you think are safe and sound. No, you're in the military. You're it's inherently dangerous. So anybody that says anything different or makes fun of internally, we can. But don't be an, you know don't be an external person and say, hey, I look down on what you did in the military. No, we all have a role. Big cod. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you you still are involved. Um, I wanted to ask you this, and this is almost a personal thing, but I mean, you still get the same kind of pride that you got when you were still wearing a uniform. I mean, now you're kind of, you know, create helping to create policy. You're helping to kind of drive what our national focus is. You still do you still take pride in the fact that you're still kind of in the fight? Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, you know, now I'm a, you know, maxed out government civilian. I'm a, I'm a product manager. So now I'm dealing with uh, fielding tactical radios to the entire army, right? This is how we communicate. This is how we get around the battlefield. This is how we call for supplies, for medevacs, for, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, of course I take pride. And of course I miss being in uniform, the camaraderie and being part of that. I mean, that's why, you know, as I alluded to earlier, well, I didn't allude to it, I said it, but you know, I went back as a government civilian, an army civilian back to Afghanistan for a year because I missed it. And that's how much I love these guys. I mean, I have, you know, military officers that work for me right now. And, and I just love being around them. And we field to soldiers every day, new equipment. Yeah, there's something about, um, it's a language not everybody can understand. Um, I talked in the opening how we had kind of the same reaction when the first plane hit that we kind of made a joke like moron. You know, because nobody knew. Yeah. And what, what kind of what kind yeah. of dumbass flies into a big? Animal? How do you miss a building? And then you know, <laughs> and, and it's funny because there are going to be people you that must are going to watch too many surveillance, right? Exactly. Well, there's going to be people that are going to watch this show and think how insensitive or whatever, and they're not going to understand. That's how you process stuff. Like you can't, and not everybody has to do that. And it's a good thing that there are some people who can do that because you know it, it's what makes the movie A Few Good Men so good because Jack Nicholson's not wrong in all of his ranting and all of his talking about what it takes. You to want me on that wall. <laughs> you need me on that wall. <laughs> who you, Lieutenant Weinberg? Well, don't be anti-Semitic, uh, Jack. Okay. Uh, I did want to ask you though, because again, you have a lot more forethought on this stuff than I ever did. Um I, I have already recorded the closing of this episode and I did tell people like the, the last 13 that passed away in Kabul, those are not the last people that we're going to lose to the war on terror. Where do you see the war on terror going and where do you see Afghanistan going? Um, well, Afghanistan is tricky. I mean, there's a, there is a lot of politics involved with Afghanistan and there's a lot of, uh, of, you know, the world stage involved on that right now. I think the focus right now is on making sure we get each and every one of our Americans and American allies, those that uh, were very important to our success that we had there, interpreters, uh, female judges, teachers, right? Folks that were, were trying to make a, a democratic society there uh, over the last 20 years. Uh, we're working very hard to get those out, but we still have some Americans over there too. We're, we're working to get out. Um, where do I see us going from here? Um, I mean, where do we, where do I see us going in terms of just that? No, I mean, just how do you think the war on terror is going to shape up? I mean, do you see it where it's going to go back to sort of drones and special ops types, or do you see another big military presence somewhere? Well, obviously, you know, we, uh, we're always concerned about, uh, you know, the biggies out there that are always kind of, 
kind of poking around the, the China's, the Iran's, the North Korea's, right? Uh, get worried about a lot of stuff that's happening south of our border uh, in some of those South American countries. Yeah. Uh, and the influence that uh, different uh, organizations have on them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I guess it's, and there's a lot of stuff going on in Africa too, you know, so it's, it's hard to tell where the next fight is. Um, the one thing I can say is that, you know, you're going to be the big dog in the street. You got to carry a big stick. So we are prepared, right? And we are ready to go anywhere. Um, uh, that's what, that's one thing I want you to clarify on too then. And then I'll have one more question before we wrap up. But I think that there's this impression from people who um, didn't serve and they sort of think that we don't have the ability to defend ourselves because we've been so taxed in Afghanistan. Uh, ah! Please, please correct them in saying that, I don't know that there's that we can handle we can handle any fight that comes our way. Well, I gotta look up the, the latest stat. I mean, because I got an army times here somewhere, and I, I try to keep up with it. But you know, I think the last time I saw the stat of where U.S. service members are deployed, it's like you know over a hundred countries in the world right now. And you got to think about what was going on in Afghanistan, what was going on, you know, in Iraq at the same time. We still have brigades rotating through Bosnia, right? Still got brigades rotating through the Horn of Africa. Still got brigades rotating through Kuwait, right? All this simultaneously, all while maintaining, uh, you know, rapid, rapid forces that are on 24-hour recall to go kick ass anywhere in the world, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that anybody who hasn't been there, it's probably hard to understand that, but... Uh, Again, I think it comes from the we fight elsewhere so we don't have to fight in our backyards. Okay. We're going to end it up. It's a sports show. You're a big sports fan. By the time this episode drops, we're going to find out whether or not the Cowboys are for real or not. Um, they kick off about five hours from when we're recording this, or actually three hours now uh, from yeah. when we're recording this. Um, you're also a big baseball fan, big Rangers fan. You've been on to talk about them before. But how important, you know, going back to like 9-11 and like how important was or how important is it to you when you're at a sporting event or you get to see sports and you, the anthem is up and you've got that moment where you're like, I just I always feel very connected during the anthem at a sporting event. How important is sports to us to, for a break from all of this or to remind you kind of what you're a part of in this country at a macro level? Man, to see, uh, and, and I, you know, I don't want to get down the tirade of, and uh, you know, we're a country that's freedom of speech, freedom of you know religion, everything else. I, I don't want to get into folks that uh, and get down that path of the protesting stuff. Yeah, I believe they have that right. That's hundred percent their right. Uh, when I go to a sporting event or anytime I hear the anthem, um, the the little is the back of my neck stand up. My heart starts pounding. Right. Um, I still salute right every time. So do I. Um, yeah. Which makes me annoyed at people who sing it for a long time. I'm like, dude, come on. Yeah. It, I'm, uh, I'm very proud. Right. Yeah. And you know, sports is a huge piece of the military culture too, you know, tie that back in. So a big piece of, uh, of morale booster that comes from it is, you know, maybe that first sergeant that found, uh, that found a baseball game on Voice of America and comes over and brings it over to some troops, right? And, and tunes them in and they just get the tune out and listen to a ball game for a bit. Or yeah. uh, 
you know, hey, we're going to take a break here and you guys rotate through, but we're going to watch the Super Bowl here at the mess hall, you know, while we're deployed. You know, those kinds of things. Sports are very big into military culture, as you, as you know. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thanks a lot for, for giving us this time. Um, you know, I know we're going to see each other in a, in well, really like a month and a half. We'll be out at the uh, Southern Maryland Blue Crabs together. I cannot wait to uh, have a beer or eight. I will be uh, butt naked, just to let you know. And uh, you'll be the first guy I write up double double man up on my Harley. So I'm I'm so excited. I hope that all happens while you're not wearing pants. From the bleachers, the let's get to game of the week. So we don't have a traditional from the bleachers for you, but I do want to highlight five teams whose bleachers sit in a military community. I said at the very, very beginning that baseball does so much for our men and women who are serving because they're not, they're not usually you're not in your backyard. And so the idea that you can go to something that's familiar, that feels the same, it, it's important. It keeps morale up. It keeps focus on what we're doing here. To me, it's similar uh, when I would be, when I was deployed or when I was stationed overseas, going to a Catholic church. I am Catholic. And so that familiarity felt the same. And yeah, I just made a comparison to a baseball diamond to a Catholic church. God's a baseball fan. There's no way around it. But we want to highlight five teams that really do their best. And there are so many more. There are so many more. But these ones are uniquely positioned to be of service to our military communities. The first one we're going to discuss is the San Antonio Missions. And as mentioned before, San Antonio isn't just the home of the missions, but it's also the home to Fort Sam Houston and Lackland Air Force Base, as well as several other Air Force installations. Now we want to highlight the Norfolk Tides. Norfolk, Virginia isn't just the home to the Tides, but it's also the home to Naval Station Norfolk. Naval Station Norfolk is the United States Navy base in Norfolk, Virginia, and is the headquarters and home port of the U.S. Navy's Fleet Forces Command. The installation occupies about four miles of waterfront space and 11 miles of pier and wharf space of the Hampton Roads Peninsula at Seawolf Point. It is the world's largest naval station with the largest concentration of U.S. Navy forces through 75 ships. Port Services controls more than 3,100 ship movements annually, and Air Operations conducts over 100,000 flight operations each year. Now let's take a look at the Rocky Mountain Vibes. Colorado Springs, Colorado isn't just the home of the Vibes, one of the coolest looking mascots in minor league baseball, but it's also the home to many military institutions, including the United States Air Force Academy, Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Stations, Fort Carson Army Post, Peterson Air Force Base, and Shriver Air Force Base. Now we're going to look at the Aberdeen Ironbirds. Since 1917, the U.S. Army has tested all manner of munitions, including field artillery, mortars, and air defense weaponry at the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Aberdeen, Maryland. It's also the home to a minor league baseball team, the Aberdeen Ironbirds. And last but not least, a team you'll hear a little bit more from today, the Fayetteville Woodpeckers. Fayetteville, North Carolina is not just home to the Woodpeckers, but also home to iconic Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg is known as the home of the Airborne and Special Operations Force. Fort Bragg houses the 18th Airborne Corps, of which I was once a member, and the 82nd Airborne Division, the U.S. Army Special Operations Command, and the U.S. Army Parachute Team, known as the Golden Knights. So if you're in the military and you're in any of these communities, get out go see a game. And if you're just living in these communities and you're not serving and you're out there and you 
right before the anthem, you see a guy saluting the flag. It's a little awkward for us sometimes, but thank him for his or her service. It's going to mean a lot more to them than you can possibly know. Ladies and gentlemen, please adjust your scorecards. We have a special guest in the lineup. So we're excited to be joined by a familiar face on the show, Brian Arbor, but he's not here to talk Astros. He's the Associate Professor of Political Science at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Uh, Brian, how's it going? I'm good, James. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, so I did in my intro, you know, this is our 9-11 episode where we're kind of looking at sort of baseball's role in 9-11, but also just kind of where we've gone. And I have said in the intro that essentially I feel like there's more um, emotional attachment and sort of sympathy uh, when we reflect on Pearl Harbor than what we have as a country with 9-11, in part because so many people went on the conspiracy theory thing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that statement? Am I way off base? No. I mean, this is 9-11 has always been highly politicized. It's always been a key part of the, the high-level political debate in this country. And a lot of that is taking the tragedy, the suffering, both on that day, and then also of what's happened in a subsequent response to it, both in terms of the actual response by invading Afghanistan, and then the secondary response to invading Iraq, and conflating those together. And so when things get politicized, when things get politicized in the sense of something that's partisan or ideological, yeah. Some people agree with it because they like the politicians who advocate for it. Some people go against it because they don't like those politicians who advocate for it. And yeah, it's a very sort of different response than if you look historically at World War II, where the entire, the entire country, certainly the entire political apparatus, rallied behind the rallied behind the country. And that was plenty of, you know, the Democrat in charge of that time, Franklin Roosevelt, but also plenty of Republicans. It wasn't as much of a partisan response to Pearl Harbor as there was to 9-11. It's been 20 years. Um, you live in New York now, but you're, first of all, when you're a student at University of Texas, um, you know, I, I talked on the opening of the show how my response was to the planes hitting that day as a, I was also in school, but I was at basic non-commissioned officers course. So a little bit different. Uh, what was the day like for you as far as you can remember? It was I guess the biggest thing I remember from that day and then the, was I had my first sort of substantive uh, class at graduate school. And we'd had the week before there was high welcome and this is the first time you would, you know, read, it's graduate school. So read, uh, read eight articles in a book and then uh, come in on and we'll talk about it. And of course that got completely canceled by, you know, you know, that discussion are completely canceled by, we need to talk about what's going on today in the world, because it's obviously important to how we sort of understand things. And then an evening class and was, and we got to get out of here to see what the president says, because he will be talking. And there's obviously this sort of, this just this massive seriousness to today. I also remember like the fright of that day. I had a friend who had previously lived in Sacramento, California. I had a friend who lives uh, 10 blocks from the state capitol and talking to her, she couldn't get to sleep that night, not because of her anxiety, but because there was helicopters circling over the state capitol. Right. Because we didn't, you know, actually, 
we didn't know what was coming next. And that's, I mean, like that was the clear sort of reaction to the plane going down in Pennsylvania and figuring out it was going. It was, that was the thing that really, I think, set off paranoia that it wasn't just a single attack, but it could be all sorts of anything. Yeah, I'm actually continuously surprised to this day that like it seems to me the audacity of, to pull that off, I would have shocked. You know, I talk in the opening, my wife was on, in Baumholder, Germany when I was in Oklahoma, and I was just shocked nothing happened there. Because if you're going to do that, then you might as well, you know, I guess we're fortunate they didn't. Um, how do you feel like we have reacted to the, the – there was so much that happened at the outcome of the event. We saw, obviously, the heroism of firefighters, police officers, and EMTs. We also saw an, an immense amount of empathy and sympathy from the worldwide community. Um, how do you feel like we reacted to all of the, those circumstances in the 20 years since it happened? Since the since the attack, I mean, I sort of have two reactions to that. One on a you know one of the things is I moved to I moved to New York in two thousand seven when I got the job here at John Jay College, and it's a very different feeling about what nine eleven is here because it's it's personal to the you know this is personal in the sense of people in my town died that day, and their families are still here people at my college, about 70 people associated with my college, um, you know, because my college has tons of people who are, in law who are in law enforcement and in public safety. So a lot of those, you know, a lot of those cops and firefighters were graduates of my college. Some were professors at, at the college I work at. So in that sense, it's very sort of personal in a real sense that was different for me living, you know, 2,000 miles away from the site of the attack. I know it was attack on us as a country, sure. um, us as an entity, and I certainly felt that on 9-11, but it's something different to sort of you know, the personal loss experienced by the people who are you know, in the communities I now, I now am a member of. Politically, I feel something very sort of different, which is I think you know, our country has made bad decisions about how to react to 9-11 and have not had good strategic decisions about it. And I say that I say that both about politicians I've voted for and politicians who I voted against. I don't think that's a, when I say America's made bad decisions, that's a collective decision. That's a collective criticism uh, that is not, you know, this particular politician did this or this particular guy. I'm not naming them for that purpose, right? It's not my, you know, right. my criticism here is not of individual specifically, because in some ways they're responding to large currents of public opinion is something bigger than any sort of individual person. And, you know, I'm hopeful that now, 20 years after this, and particularly I'm hopeful that with our, um, you know, our military presence in Afghanistan ending, that we're able to renew a broader set of ties with other people in the world on a shared set of values, which I think got frittered away by failures of the invasions of Afghanistan. Yeah, it's interesting how my opinion has changed. Um, I've definitely, I definitely su still sort of support the concept of us having invaded Afghanistan. It seems like where we often make mistakes is when we hang around a little bit longer than maybe we should have. Um, Iraq, I, I definitely moved in a different direction on um, kind of where we are, you know, that seemed like maybe we didn't have to do that. Um, 
And it's, of course, it's easy. Like, you know, they say when you're talking about history, you judge it in the context of its time, not the context that Mm -hmm. you're living in now. And that's easy. Where do you see it like politically withdrawing from Afghanistan and looking at how 9-11 still plays a role? I mean, do we still, do you feel like it's going to, are we done dealing with it as a country? I guess is my question. No, I'm not sure how long it'll take, but it'll take more than 20 years, right? It was a you know, the comparison is to Pearl Harbor, right, that you made earlier, right? And that's appropriate, right, in the sense of, you know, that has the whole where were you on that day and what did you know when you should have learned that. Um, but I think it's very different to attack members of the military than it is to attack civilians. Sure. And it was also an attack not by a state, right? You know, another country invades us, we declare war against that country, right, is very different than we were attacked by an organized yet still amorphous group of, you know, terrorists and sort of what they want is clear on some levels and unclear on sort of other levels. And of course, part of what happens in both uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, but particularly Afghanistan, right, is that so much of what we did there militarily was not about, you know, getting back at the people who, um, who, who invaded us. We were there 10 years after we captured Osama bin Laden. And then too, Osama bin Laden wasn't in Afghanistan when we captured him. He was, you know, he was in a different, he was in a different country and our military president in Afghanistan probably doesn't get us to Osama. Obviously, Part of the goal was to sort of remake a Afghanistan that would not be a failed state and would not harbor terrorists, uh, something that's clearly over 20 years has failed. Were you shocked at how fast it failed? Uh, one of the things that, that shocked for me is I was watching a CNN reporter and just watching her garments change from mm-hmm. like wearing what a Western woman would wear to having her head covered. Were you shocked at how fast all that happened? Yeah, but I mean, I think it speaks to part of what we weren't able to do. Like, we weren't able to create a sustainable Afghani government that could uphold an Afghani military that could uphold itself against an attack. And yeah, so it's it's surprising. And also, the question it raises for me is, what were we doing there for twenty years? Not as a you know, like, why did we not? Why were we so unsuccessful in building an Afghani military and Afghani government? And that's a question we need an answer to, you know, a good answer to and a real sort of detailed and thoughtful answer to before we do this again, because that's a big failure of our policy. And, you know, we, we, need, to, we need to figure out how to do it better next time if we do it next time or realize that if we can't do it at all, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. When you see how... People have people react to 9/11 differently, um, and it seems like we were living. And it seems like it's emblematic of the polar opposites we're living in the country right now. But when you see there's sort of, um, you know, I take a very human cost to it. It's heartbreaking. I remember exactly what it was like going through that day. Um, you know, and we, you know, we, we were, we, we actually canceled school. Like all the army guys went, we went back to our temporary barracks to do nothing but watch the news and sort of refocus the fact that when we got back to school the next day, our lives were very different at that point. Um, But when you see sort of a more jingoistic, like 
rah rah, let's kick their ass thing. Um, is there is there a place for that, or do you feel like that's sort of waste wasted and unuseful energy? Um, there's obviously a place for that in the sense, right, that it's a real important. You know, if we believe in this country and believe in these ideas when it's hurt, right, when it is uh, attacked and damaged. Yes, we we can be angry about that, right, and we can be want to do something about that. The question is, how do sort of politicians and leaders channel that anger? And there were moments where they did it very well, and there are moments where they did it very poorly. And, you know, the, the, one of the questions, you know, so there's a, there's a public opinion component here, which is, if there's another attack like this, we'll have that if there's, you know, issues in the world, we're the strongest power in the world, we're going to be probably responsible for trying to sort of deal with it. Um, but there is a leadership component of how do I take public sentiment and turn it into something productive? How do I turn it into something that is going to lead to a better result? And that better result needs to be in the ground and policy and not just at the ballot box the next day election. Yeah. And it's like, it, you know, obviously I'm, I am, um, I'm a pretty, um, I'm pretty hawkish when it comes to defense. Like I, I think um, there should be a couple of unwritten rules in the world. And one of those is you don't get to kill American soldiers. Um, and I thought we, we failed in our response in Somalia and how we dealt with that. And I think to some degree, we failed in our response to that for the 13 that lost their lives in Kabul. I just am not sure that I'm a fan of the folks who have never put on a uniform, never had to do all that stuff, raving the wag and talk flag and talking about going over there and, and taking care of business like it's an 80s style action movie. Yeah, I mean, war is, war is a vicious and messy business and it has consequences. You know, every war in history has a consequence if they were not intended by those who started. And that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile and it doesn't mean it's not something that, you know, you can make an informed judgment about. So you're a pacifist. I respect that opinion, and I have sympathy, great sympathies towards that. But um, you know, it requires again good judgment by leaders, and so you know that is a, yeah, and that's really hard. And again, it's something that has failed, um, I think, for multiple, you know, for many, many politicians across the. So I guess as we wrap up then, I mean, you have a sense of, of all of it. This is a sports show. How important was sports going back to 2011, you know, baseball, uh, sorry, 2001, baseball getting back together, uh, football being played? How, how important was that for the country to start to feel a little less shaken after what had happened? Yeah, I mean, the weekend after, but remember this way, that most sports canceled themselves for the weekend after 9-11. I think SEC football didn't initially and then responded to public opinion that it should pause. Um, and it reflected, again, a public sentiment. This is, this is important and we need to sort of reflect on it in some way. And this is an important, this is so important that our normal lives you know, can't go on in the same way. So scary, but also I think reflective. Um, obviously, getting things back together and sports became a place where there was lots of uh, places to rally the country and to um, express patriotism in ways that were 
united. Um, so again, as much, you know, whatever sort of criticisms or praise we want to have of George W. Bush, him going out and throwing the first pitch of the World Series game was a excellent symbol for the country, right, that we were again, unified and also getting in some ways back to normal. I also think of like, you know, more Texas-based thing. Uh, Texas A&M did the thing where they, uh, they sold t-shirts for everyone to wear and there was a red in for the three levels of their stadium. So there's a red level, a white level, a blue level. It looked awesome. Yeah. It, it, it was, you know, and if you got all these people to come together for that was again, I think, you know, symbolic of that. So sport, The thing that Americans do most together these days is sports. The Super Bowl is the most watched event in this country. It's the one thing, you know, it's one thing where we all sort of come together and do something and everything else is so split in the media world that that becomes a place yeah. of sort of unity. And we certainly saw that on 9-11 on, on in 2001. And we'll see again some of that in the celebrations that we'll see over the next week here in 2021. Okay, so I, I, I lied. Wrong, wrong question. Um, if we follow things like sort of uh, on a timeline, we could talk about how, and you you mentioned how it was a little different, how Pearl Harbor kind of brought us together, and then nine eleven did for a minute until the next election style, uh, election election cycle. Are we then shocked or not shocked that we had that same opportunity with the pandemic to really come together as a country and beat this thing, and instead chose not to? The dominant theme of American politics, which is what I study, the dominant theme of American politics over the 21st century is, is polarization. That you have two ideologically coherent, homogenous parties, and they're just about equal, and they have, for that reason, have real trouble getting, getting along. That's probably sort of too strong that they sort of, you know, if the other guys win, they're going to do things I don't like. It's a true statement on both sides. Yeah. So in that sense, it's not surprising that you know, the pandemic, something that should bring us together, has led to sort of so much of difficulty. Um, it's also worth noting the pandemic affects us on a personal level in a way that you know, we have to, I have to make tons of behavioral changes in my life because of the pandemic. And we all do, right? I'm just wearing masks. I'm teaching. I'm doing my work now all virtually, right? I keep having. I have, an, I have a. I have an eight-year-old son who's unvaccinated. I have to make tons of decisions based on the fact that he's unvaccinated, and that's different than I get him vaccinated. So, in that sense, it's much more first. It's, it's literally more personal uh, than 9/11 because it affects just about every single person in this country. So, in that sense, yeah, it's not surprising, right? Because None of us like this abnormality. Right. And, you know, that's affecting how we have relationships with each other. And it gets to real sort of things on a daily basis. On the other hand, I think that means we recover from it faster than 9 11 in that sense. Fingers crossed here because, you know, if we get out of this, when we get out of this, we can go back to normal. And that's the goal for so many people. And then we can go, you know, yell at each other over tax cuts or, you know, whether the, uh, you know, how much banging a trash can matters. I was going to say with fingers crossed, we got fingers crossed for the pandemic. We have fingers crossed for the Astros. Brian, thanks so much for jumping on this episode. It really means a lot to, for you to bring that perspective. Thank you, James. Happy to do it. 
Who's on first? The Let's Get To Local 9, brought to you by Zoomer Sport. So we are excited to be joined by Andrew Chapman, voice of your Fayetteville Woodpeckers and Fort Bragg's uh, Fayetteville Woodpeckers. First of all, Andrew, um, you have a very interesting apartment design, or are you on the road today? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of nice decor in here, and I <laughs> yeah. myself am no per, uh, interior decorator whatsoever. So uh, these were designed by the Holiday Inn Express by uh, in Kannapolis, North Carolina, where uh, the woodpeckers are right now. We're on our final road trip of the regular season. So uh, yeah, TVs hung on the wall, nice cabinetry, photos, lamps. Not uh, not my thing. If you walk into my personal apartment, so yeah, I'm about to say it's a. Pr- Pretty generic art choice. Um, talk to me a little bit about yourself. How did you end up going from someone who I presume is a kid who liked baseball to end up being the voice of the Fayetteville Woodpeckers? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a long journey in baseball that involves uh, growing up around the minor leagues to playing it in high school uh, to realizing I wasn't good enough to play in college or pro and then transitioning over to media. Uh, but my dad was actually the uh, general manager of the Stockton Ports from uh, oh. 1991 up through 99. And I was born in 95. So I grew up uh, in a minor league dugout. My little league teammates would get to go on the field and, and get to know some of the Stockton Ports players. I grew up in the city of Stockton. And it was a very early introduction to baseball. That was the sport of the family. It was the sport my dad played in junior college uh, that my grandparents uh, loved. So I was introduced to it to a very young age, got to play it up uh, through high school. I was very fortunate to do that. I uh, didn't have uh, what it took to play in later years beyond uh, beyond high school, uh, but knew that uh, I wanted to get involved in, in some form in, in sports media. I wasn't sure if reporting or, or play by play was was my angle. Uh, I developed the speech bug a little bit in high school, though, the communications bug. I was yeah. doing some uh, public debate, speech and debate uh, on my high school team. So became a good communicator, uh, critical thinker, all of that, and knew that I could take my sports passion, tie it in with my communications passion. So if I wind up uh, going to Arizona State and Walter Cronkite School and dabbling a little bit of everything when it comes to news reporting, writing, uh, play-by-play, and it was, it was ultimately the play-by-play and covering Arizona State baseball and softball that uh, I really gravitated towards and found a deep passion in. Having grown up around minor league baseball, I figured that was going to be the best spot for me to start out of college to grow a broadcast career. And there's interest in football and basketball, all of those sports for me as well, too. But uh, baseball is where I wanted to start. And I was fortunate to land a job, not right away, because I graduated in May of 2017. Yeah. So I had to spend about eight months in an enterprise rent-a-car. Uh, just <laughs> working on the sales uh, the, the sales pitch and, and, and all that. But uh Fortunately, I was able to persist through that job, uh, save up a little money, and then go to Rancho Cucamonga in 2018. For go Quakes. Yep, yep, the Quakes, a uh, Dodger affiliate. And uh, that was such a great spot to, to learn for the first time how the business really worked on a media relations front, on a nightly broadcast end. I got to work under a guy named Mike Linscog. Uh, in Rancho, who is terrific, lots of energy for Mike, uh, good front office, people who'd been in the business for a long time and, and showed me the ropes. So worked there, transitioned into an assistant job in Biloxi, Mississippi for a Brewers affiliate, the Biloxi Shuckers. Mm-hmm. Uh, great yeah. name, great seafood down there on the Mississippi coast. 
And uh, in 2020, I had the opportunity to be a number one for the first time after being an assistant for a couple of years. And it, it came in uh, Jackson, Tennessee with the, uh, the generals. And how, uh, how did your 2020 season go? Boy, I, just about as good as everybody else's. <sighs> and I, I broadcasted about as many games as everybody else in <laughs> 2020. Um, but uh, in short, you know, I come to your show today as the uh, voice of the Fayetteville Woodpeckers, uh, not the Generals. And uh, unfortunately, I never got to broadcast a game for the Generals. Uh, we, I got to town in uh, November of 2019, again, working for a great front office staff, good people that are friends uh, to this day and, and will be for a long time. We were putting together a great promo schedule. And then COVID hits in early March and we're thinking, okay, maybe a two, three week layoff to the start of the season. Season yeah. ticket holders are calling. What's the plan? I say, well, we might be able to start the season in June. And then it just continues to spiral and spiral and spiral. And, and sure enough, uh, before long, it we knew there wasn't going to be much of a season at all. And sure enough, uh, there wasn't as the whole sport got shut down there. And, and then to add things on top of that, unfortunately, Jackson found itself on the contraction list. Right. Uh, the, the list of 42. And um, I know there was a, a lot of different lobbying outside of, of my own control that uh, Jackson was trying to do to, to stay on the list. Uh, unfortunately, they still wound up getting contracted. They wound up uh, working out a deal with the Winnipeg Gold Eyes of the American Association to still host some of their ball games and give their fans in Jackson a, a chance to watch the baseball this summer. Uh, but for, for me, fortunately, the opportunity came to get back into affiliated ball continue to move out east, go to my third and final time zone from a California kid now all the way to the East Coast, complete the full yeah. journey and uh, wind up with the Woodpeckers. So I was frantically packing my car a couple weeks before the season and and got to Fayetteville in late April and was ready to fire up right before the first homestand. So it's been it's been a whirlwind. It doesn't feel like it's been four months or so, but here we are down the final two weeks of the regular year and and I'm happy to have another opportunity in baseball working for my fourth team in four years. Uh, but is Fayetteville somewhere I want to stay for a little while, for sure. Well, and you know, it's funny because um, we actually got to go cover the Woodpeckers in the in their opening season. We went out to Secker Stadium when it was brand new. Not that it's, you know, an old beater now, but, you know, right. and, and so... <laughs> I mean, what a cool place to land. What a, what a, I mean, really great environment to actually get to be a part of. Yeah. And in many ways it, it felt like you were becoming a part of an inaugural season as someone who was uh, just getting to town and getting a feel for the place. Uh, you build a brand new ballpark in 2019 and you give the people of Fayetteville this awesome new entertainment opportunity right there in the heart of downtown, which I'd heard prior to the ballpark was a spot you sometimes hung out at, but not a ton. And, and it wasn't necessarily a buzzing place like it is now on the weekend. Uh, and then you take it away in all of 2020 and you shut it down and, and people are stuck inside and looking for something to do. And so you fire baseball back up 2021. And it, it felt like we were christening a brand new ballpark once again. And, uh, you know, we're reintro reintroducing the brand to the city. So I, th I think people are very happy to uh, have baseball back. We did have to operate under a limited capacity for the first month or so. Yeah. But once we opened that up, uh, people flooded in and, and we were really stoked to see a close to sellout crowds pretty much every Saturday night this year in, in Fayetteville. Uh, got to bring on a number of uh, new community partners this year, build new season ticket holders. And, and I think we're uh, 
gearing up for six more home games next week, uh, which should be a solid finish for the year. Again, unfortunately, the Woodpeckers, uh, as we were kind of talking before the show, aren't yeah. a playoff contender uh, this year. It's more uh, postseason packing at this stage of the season than uh, than it is getting ready to, to play a playoff series, but uh, still an opportunity at this stage of the year for fans to take a look at all of the new Astros 2021 draft picks. We have a ton of those guys who are making an impact here early on, and uh, it's been good to get to know them and and see all the new talent coming into the system here over the back end of the year. I was going to say, because there's a lot of people that should have been pitching for Fayetteville who unfortunately had to pitch for Houston this year. So it really <laughs> caused a ripple effect up. Um, on a personal level then, you know, how much did it mean for you? I mean, you talked about the odyssey of working for a place you actually never worked for because uh, you never actually got to call a game. Um, what did it mean for you to kind of get back into that routine of, of being at the ballpark every day and, and actually getting to do the thing you're working that you're, that you've worked so hard to, to build a career in. Yeah. It, uh, it was something that you thought there for a minute uh, was going to be ripped away from you personally, you know, and, and I, I, I still think about a lot of people who find themselves on the outside of baseball right now, hoping that they can get back into it and get back into that daily grind routine that uh, is a lot of hours, but we've all fallen in love with. If you love the game of baseball and you love entertaining fans. Um, so I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to get into a new opportunity that allows me to call games every day, grow as a broadcaster, finally get that number one opportunity where I'm, running my own media department that I worked up to the first couple of years. Um, I still think about the people in Jackson, you know, who are hoping to rebuild that franchise into something that's unique to their city, whether it's affiliated ball or non-affiliated ball. So, you know, I'd still try and stay in touch with those folks. Um, but the Fayetteville opportunity uh, came, it was just a few weeks before the regular season, really. I, uh, I kind of threw my hat in the ring at a couple other opportunities, fell short on a couple of things and, continue to persist, know that I wanted to get into baseball still. And, and the Fayetteville opportunity was a kind of uh, one of the last ones that popped up before the regular season began. And I'd researched the history of the, the ballpark, the franchise, the Astros, uh, the Fayetteville fan base and the history of Fayetteville. And I said, this looks like a really cool opportunity and a, and a place that's embraced baseball uh, since really even 2017, when you had the Bowie's Creek Astros run into town there for a minute. Yeah. And transition into Fayetteville. So I said, this, this is a really good spot to, to be in. And uh, fortunately uh, I was able to have the right people supporting me to get me to talk to the folks in the front office and, and got to know them really well. And it all kind of came together and, and led to me packing the Ford focus and, and getting out to Fayetteville. <laughs> and I'd say ever since I got to town, uh, the people I've gotten to know in the area, their story, the military history of the city, uh, it's one of the most unique places I've ever lived in. And, uh, and I'm grateful to be here. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, I'm a vet and I know what it's like to be deployed or to be stationed somewhere else. And, you know, for me, when I was uh, stationed in Oklahoma, I'd go see a Red Hawks game every now and again, and it would kind of give me that taste of what it was like to be back home. Uh, I compare it to sort of being, I'm a Catholic. So when you go to, you go to mass anywhere, it's the same. Uh, sure. if you go to a baseball game anywhere, it's the same. How important are the woodpeckers for that population on Fort Bragg. I mean, there that's a population of people from all over the country living in this one spot. How important does baseball play in, in their sort of day-to-day -day lives when they're not training or deploying? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, this is the first year where I get on a broadcast every night and uh, I remind myself that this is the coolest job in the world and 
there's a luxury for me getting to sit here and call a baseball game every night. And it's, uh, you know, for the folks that commit their lives to defending our country, giving us the freedom to enjoy a baseball game with our families or call a baseball game on the weekend. And uh, mo moving to Fayetteville is the first time that that uh, I think really was kind of contextualized for me, seeing all of the military families that come to our ballpark every weekend, the veterans, the active service members, uh, they're always they're always in town. They, they make up, I, I've been told, uh, usually over like 40% of our fan base on any given Saturday night. And uh, generally in a military town like uh, Fayetteville, I've kind of been told there is a lot of turnover with people who kind of come and go through the city. Sure. So you're not dealing with your same fan base every year. You're reintroducing the Woodpeckers brand to new people practically every weekend as you do have people coming and going throughout the city. So uh, we always make sure as a front office that, you know, we're representing the brand the best way we can. We try and keep everything fresh, never get stale, whether it's uh, creating new promotions or new in-game entertainment. Uh, we honor a, a local military hero, a different one every single night, you know, put them on camera, read about their, uh, their backgrounds and their successes. Uh, so it, it's uh already ingrained itself as a deep community asset that I think a lot of folks know that it is affordable. They can bring kids of all ages to, right. and, uh, and they're going to get quality entertainment at the first time and uh, kind of serve as a distraction, I guess, for a few hours of, of the harsh realities that, uh, you know, happen outside of a, a ballpark that allow us the luxuries to, to go there every day and do that. Well, well said, brother. I think you, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, we're very excited for you. I, I hope that you'll stick around uh, in Fayetteville next year because we're going to try to get back up for – because I got to see what else – because when we were there, um, mm. they were still developing some of the high-rises in the lofts in the area around – I'm just curious to see how much farther along the development's gone. Yeah, they have the uh, – so I was told that there's a, a big parking complex right to the side of the ballpark, and I'm told that they're going to be continuing to build on that and uh, create like a hotel space and maybe even a little bit of a miniature mall. I, I think the COVID shutdown delayed a lot of the plans on that front, but I'm hearing like the 2023, 2024 dates thrown around. So it, it's still a development project right, right now. And you have the uh, St. Charles right there across the street, some of the uh, old renovated apartment housing and all sorts of little restaurants and bars popping up around the area. So it's the, uh, it's the place to be. Even where we are right now, Kannapolis has a very similar kind of rustic downtown feel to it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Kinston downtown is, is uh, obviously has a lot going on and is pretty close to Granger Stadium out there. So I, I've enjoyed the places I've traveled to this year in the league, and uh, Fayetteville continues to, to grow in that downtown area. So you'll have to come on back out. Well, we're going to look to get out there again next season. He is Andrew Chapman, voice of your Fayetteville, Fayetteville Woodpeckers. Uh, thanks so much for jumping on. And, uh, sharing everything that you're going through and, and being a part of Let's Get too. No problem, Jim. Uh, really appreciate you having me on. Uh, go Woodpeckers. Go Astros. Uh, Fayetteville might not be in the postseason push this year, but Houston sure is. So we'll be uh, all rooting for the Strohs here in Fayetteville here pretty soon. On deck, the Let's Get To interview. Brought to you by Marco Fine Arts. So we are super excited uh, on our 9-11 show to be joined by one of our best friends of the show, Victoria Huggins. You guys know her when she used to work for the the Woodpeckers, and she's got a whole new thing going on, and we're excited to talk about that. But first, Victoria, how are you? 
I'm doing great. I'm actually on family vacation right now. So I'm getting some much needed R&R after two and a half years with the Fayetteville Woodpeckers going full speed ahead. So it's very nice to be able to take a little bit of time, smell the salt air, have my toes in the sand, but I always make time for my friends at Let's Get To. So. And I'm like, I wish we could be at the beach right now too. I'm in my, I call it <laughs> Studio B. I've got a film classroom surrounded by me. Um, and it's know, amazing. You're passing on your passion of baseball to a whole new generation. You know what? And I, and I actually have a blast doing it. And they, they, I, I think I've created a few new fans, which means I'm doing way, much better than Rob Manfred. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Well, um, we, we certainly know how to make a few fans in Fayetteville too. Well, and I wanted to talk about that because, you know, obviously we're here to talk about what you're doing now, but this is our 9-11 remembrance episode. Um, Talk to me a little bit about just what it was like to work for your dad retired from the military. So you understand service, you understand that stuff. Under, talk to me a little bit about working for a team near a military base that was actively fighting the war on terror and just how much more important baseball becomes in that kind of realm. So I think that especially with us having the Fayetteville Woodpeckers in Fayetteville, that the Houston Astros chose us out of all of the different options and cities that pitched for them to come and bring their minor league baseball affiliate to their community. I'm so thankful that the Houston Astros chose Fayetteville because not only has it boosted our economy, but it has also boosted our morale. It's such an honor to get to see families walking hand in hand, soldiers getting off of work after putting in, you know, those hard hours to be able to make sure that our country stays safe and they're able to come out to Sager Stadium and enjoy that time with their friends or with their family or maybe even make a few new friends whenever these military families move so very frequently. It's really important that they establish that sense of community and that sense of belonging. And that's one of the things that baseball does is bring people together in a safe community environment. And for my family, especially, I remember growing up and my dad told me, don't you ever go downtown Hay Street by yourself. It's dangerous. <laughs> so it is very, um, it's kind of, funny now um, to know that Hay Street has completely transformed and now everybody wants to come to Hay Street because it's completely reinvented itself. So I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. And I was thinking about it when um, I was at a San Antonio missions game the other day and the missions sort of are very similar to the woodpeckers in the sense that they're centered in the middle of the air force and you yes. always see you know, cadets who have just graduated, I guess they're called cadets. I'm not, I was in the military, not the Air Force. I don't know. Um, that's a shot across the bow to my Air Force friends. Deal with it. Um, yeah, but I, so I don't know, but you know, you would always see like graduating from basic training, they're, they're they clear, and then now they're at a ball game with family because it, it feels yeah. like home no matter where you are. And we're very um, connected as well with the garrison and the garrison commander on base at Fort Bragg. And we always try to find ways that we can welcome them into our ballpark, um, especially with every single game. One of the things that I always loved during a Woodpeckers game is right there before the seventh inning stretch, um, we would have our hometown hero recognition. So every game we would collaborate with the USO um, station there in North Carolina, which fun fact is the oldest USO in the entire country. Oh. 
So it's the very first one. So we collaborated with them every single game to highlight a veteran in our stadium. And we would do a brief bio about what they did and their sacrifice and their service to our country. And it was always so heartwarming to see the entire stadium just rouse and applause and a standing ovation. And that's what our country needs is to be able to come together to recognize these heroes, no matter if they're older veterans who fought in Vietnam or whether they're younger veterans who have fought for our freedom with the war on terror. So I really appreciate that we have that element in Fayetteville, and that is a tradition that's never going to go away. Well, speaking of service, one of the things I think that really connected me with you and our show with you is that you seem to do everything with a whole heart and with love and with faith, and that's such a beautiful thing. Um, and you've moved on. You are not with the Woodpeckers, although I saw you, you're at a game not long ago, so you're not too <laughs> far, but uh, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing now and, and, and the thing you're trying to raise awareness for. Well, since I was a little girl and I would sing, I would go to nursing homes. I've always been connected to Alzheimer's patients and their families. Um, the people who are living with Alzheimer's disease and dementia have always been someone or an audience that I really connected with because some times when I would sing, uh, memories would come back to these wonderful individuals who had unfortunately lost their memories because of this devastating disease. And it would bring so much comfort and so much joy to the family that just for a moment, they had a small glimpse of their loved one and who they were before dementia and Alzheimer's set in. So I've been advocating for Alzheimer's disease and dementia um, ever since I was 12. And I have volunteered. I have been on the committee for the walks to end Alzheimer's throughout North Carolina. That was my platform when I was Miss North Carolina in 2017-2018. And absolutely loved being able to bring a national spotlight on the issue um, with being interviewed by People Magazine and Fox News about my advocacy efforts. And all of a sudden, this season on a Monday, right after a homestand, I got a phone call from the executive director of the North Carolina chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And she was like, so Victoria, <laughs> we have a young lady who's not going to be coming back from maternity leave. And we think you would be perfect for this position. And I was like, that came uh -huh. out of left field. I was not expecting that. So they literally gave me an offer that I could not refuse. So now I get to have the opportunity to be the walk manager for the Alzheimer's Association in North Carolina, overseeing the walk stint Alzheimer's. There are over 600 throughout the country, but I get to personally oversee Fayetteville and Moore County, which is where I live. So it's very near and dear to my heart. Love that I still get to collaborate with the Fayetteville Woodpeckers because of course, I the first thing that I did is to confirm that our walk for Fayetteville was happening at Sager Stadium and the celebration after the walk is featuring none other than our favorite red cockaded woodpecker, Mr. Bunker, for a dance celebration, a dance party on the field. So very excited to be able to continue my relationship because I'm very grateful for the opportunity and the relationships that I formed with the Fayetteville Woodpeckers and ultimately the Houston Astros. And I will always have a part of my heart for them, but they were so supportive and they were like, you know what, if you would have left us for anything else, we would have been mad at you <laughs> But because it's Alzheimer's and because they've seen me for two years, head up the efforts for paint the part purple. They came to my walk in Alzheimer's. Um, they walked with me as a, a work team and it just meant the world 
world to me over the past three years to have them so supportive. So even though I am in a different capacity, I think that it's very special that we get to continue collaborating and doing great things for the people of Fayetteville and, and North well, Carolina. Well, and how can people get involved? You know, because it is one of those um, diseases that I think anybody that's lived through it, had a family member live through it. I'm not sure it gets much worse. Um, and, and it's funny because um, it's not funny, but I was sort of thinking about, you know, my wife and I have been together 21 years and I, I have this like fear that one of us will get it. And then I can't imagine sort of end of life also forgetting her. So what yes. can we do? How can we be involved as far as even from afar to help you um, raise awareness and hopefully find some kind of a cure for this? Absolutely. Well, we have made significant strides. 2021 has been a blessing for us in terms of research because we did just have the FDA approval for the new drug that actually helps people with early onset Alzheimer's. Um, they have seen success in clinical trials with that and the FDA approved it. It's called a Dulahelm and they're working to get that to all of these Alzheimer's um, families so that they can hopefully have a little bit of more time because that's the important thing for Alzheimer's family and for people who are living with this disease is to be able to have that time. So we have that and we're still working on several other things as far as the scientific realm. But the most important thing that you can do is by number one, providing care and support for loved ones who have loved ones who have Alzheimer's disease. One of the ways that you can do that is becoming involved with the walks in Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So they're a completely free event. You register either as an individual or as a team. Like I said, my coworkers, they joined forces with me and we had our woodpeckers team in the past and they're going to do it again for Fayetteville. But you find a walk that's near you in your community and you sign up for it and you can fundraise. You can wear matching T-shirts. My mom's women's group last year wore matching tutus. Oh, I mean, I love that. You bring your dogs, bring your children, bring your church family, your civic group, your friends, whomever. It can be really this great community effort. And if you don't feel comfortable being in person, then we have what we call walk everywhere, which is what we incorporated in 2020 when we had COVID-19, okay. which is where you can still download the app. And um, you can actually walk from the comfort of your own neighborhood and community and it'll count your steps so you can still take a picture of you wearing your purple because purple is the official Alzheimer's awareness color and then tag us at Alzheimer's Association and then we can show it that you were a walk everywhere team. Well, we're going to um, spread the word about that and, and you know, maybe let's get two team will find a walk in Austin and we'll do it in your honor. That would be awesome. Or better yet, you could sign up for our Fayetteville walk for the Fayetteville walk in Alzheimer's. And then you could just walk virtually I in like Texas, that. same time, different locations, but you're still on the Fayetteville team. How about I, that? I love that. And we love you, Victoria. Thanks so much for jumping on. And um, like I was telling you off, off before we started recording, you're not done with us just because you're not, you're done with baseball for right now. You still have, we're going to keep figuring out a way to bring you on at least once a season. Thank you. And I did have good news. So speaking of that collaboration with the Fayetteville Woodpeckers, we had our second annual paint the park purple Alzheimer's awareness night. And guess how much money we raised? Um, 
go. I don't know. I, I don't even know. Go for it. Well, how much? $8,400. Wow. So that That's... goes straight to the Alzheimer's Association to provide care, advocacy, and research for our families living with this disease. And those jerseys looked amazing provided by McKee Holmes. Did you see them? They were I purple. did. They were, they were, they were amazing. Did you get a purple hat yet? I haven't got, so are they on sale on the website? If they are, I'm going to go look. They're not on sale, but you know, I do have a little bit of a connection. So I might see if I can add that to your hat collection. What do you I think? I will wear it with pride. That way you have the perfect collaboration with Alzheimer's Association and Fayetteville Woodpeckers. I, Boom, I, it's just like me in a hat. I love it. I'll wear it with pride. Victoria, thanks so much for jumping on. You're welcome. So before we close the show, the one thing I struggled on was whether or not to show images from that day. And again, people's mileage can vary on this, but sometimes it does feel salacious and it feels like we should have respect for the people who lost their lives on September 11th. It was a horrible day for not just Americans, but it was a day where people all around the world, I think, had sympathy and empathy for us, particularly those countries who also deal with terrorism. And so I really struggled with what to do. And then I kind of was reflecting on how we had two very similar events in American history. We have Pearl Harbor, and then we had September 11th. And Pearl Harbor, in some ways, feels even more impactful today than September 11th is for some people. And then I thought, we need to see the images. We should show some of them as a reminder for the people who lost their lives, the lives that were wrecked, that were changed forever, the lives of the men and women who ran into those buildings when everybody was running out, all the first responders, the police officers, fire, EMTs. It's a level of heroism that we didn't talk a lot about in the show because I was really trying to relate it to what happened in Afghanistan at the end. but. As someone who's the son of a police officer who understands what it's like to be a family member who has a parent that might not come home, that's the reality for so many people on 9-11. So we do need to remember that sacrifice and that tragedy. And while there was so much awful in that day, out of that awful, we at least saw glimpses of humanity at its best, of love and of bravery and of concern for neighbor. And I wanted to at least let that serve as a reminder by including those images in the show and making sure that it's a sacrifice that never gets forgotten. So as we wrap up, I want to thank all of you for sticking with what was admittedly a very different episode of Let's Get To. And the one thing that I keep thinking about are the 13 men and women who died in Kabul during the evacuation. And I think that there is some tendency amongst Americans to think that those were the last casualties on the war on terror. And I don't think they are. And I think that whatever we tried to do, you know, and we see that we see the comparison to our mission to the Russian mission and they're not the same. And maybe like, I'm sure people that uh, like to score points or anti-military or anti-America would say that I'm being naive. But I think if you look at what we attempted to do there, 
maybe misguided, maybe flat out tactically wrong, but I don't think was of bad intention. But whatever situation we left, we did leave the perfect environment for more groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS to continue to grow and flourish. And the mission of fighting them isn't done. And so I think we have to steel ourselves and be prepared for the fact that the war on terror didn't end. It might just have changed locations. That is our episode. I want to thank everybody for, again, coming on. I want to thank everybody for um, watching. Um, it has been, if anything, a cathartic episode for me. I will be back out uh, to the ballpark next episode. We've got, I think, four ballpark trips left to cover as the baseball season winds down. So if there's any any opportunity you have to get out to a ball game in the last few weeks before the season does end, make sure you get out there. Um, take some pride and joy in your country. Understand your ability to do that comes from the fact that in our country, everyone who dies for it did it because they believe enough in this country to do so. And that's a beautiful thing no matter how you cut it. Get out, get you some peanuts, get you some Cracker Jack, and let's get to you.